Ladies and gentlemen, the actor. The National Broadcasting Company will present within the next 55 minutes a transcribed appraisal of that phenomenon of nature called the actor. What is he? Or more importantly, why is he? The only thing an actor fears more than losing his mind is regaining it. There are three kinds of people, men, women, and actors. Never marry an actress. Actors very rarely have a good word to say about other performers. The more you praise an actor, the more it despises you. Don't call us, we'll call you. Our guest lecturer tonight is a man whose stage credits range from blackface minstrels at Center College to Shakespeare at Washington University. He is that eminent, frustrated actor, Mr. Morgan Beatty. In his long career before the public, Mr. Beatty is best known as radio's most listened to news commentator. He steps to the microphone now. Mr. Beatty. <laughs> it's true. I'm a frustrated actor. I've been one ever since I first set foot on a stage in Fort Smith, Arkansas, in a minstrel show. And I guess I'm frustrated because I never got to see my name in lights. It was in 1919 that I was offered a job with the famous Al Fields Minstrels, $25 a week. Uh, but I had to learn to play the cornet, fast and well. I never did master the cornet, but instead learned to pound a typewriter on a newsbeat. I've always regretted not taking that job with Fields. Perhaps we've all got just a bit of actor in us. Shakespeare put it this way, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. Maybe you've never known an actor. Let me tell you. This is Tallulah Bankhead introducing the actor. Actors are made of fragile stuff, easily damaged, but just as easily put together again. A little applause will usually do it. According to tradition, actors are born between the acts, cradled in the drawers of a hotel dresser, nurtured on grease paint, and when they die, they don't go to heaven, they go to the theater. Actors are a special race. They come to life at eight. Then, if you're an actor, you suddenly come alive. And for that little while, you live. You send across the footlights something you've created. Laughter, a tear, a lump in the throat. You hope something enriching, something ennobling. Something the customers down front can take home and treasure. Then the curtain falls. You take your bows, the lights come up, and you're a person again. That's the actor as he sees himself. Here's the actor as other people see him. I was born in a trunk in the Princess Theater in Pocatello. Idaho. It was during. If all the actors and actresses who say in their biographies that they were born in trunks were actually born in trunks, the trunk business would be one of America's six major industries. You are listening to the cynical voice of syndicated newspaper columnist High Gardner. I've met more song and dance guys and dolls born backstage on split weeks than the total capacity of all the maternity ward beds in America. And I love them for their illusions, just as much as I love them for their talents, their exaggerations, their persistency, their guts, their faith and belief in God and themselves. Actors like to laugh a lot and cry a lot and sleep a lot and make a lot of money. 
so they can pay a lot of taxes and brag about it. Actors were the originators of the credo of blood, sweat, and tears. They give blood to the Red Cross. They sweat to make the big time. They shed tears when one performance out of a thousand dies a dud. Actors are belligerent, gentle, cranky, jolly, silly, canny, phony, funny. Actors are sad, glad, drunk, sober, healthy, sick, stupid, slick, temperamental, sentimental. Actors wear toupees, but not spectacles. Elevated heels under flat feet, dress suits with torn shorts and holy socks. Actors love to play death scenes and at a crony's funeral try to upstage the corpse and steal the final bow. Actors would rather have a front chaise long at Lindy's than a seat in the stock exchange. An actor would rather have his caricature hanging above the pastry wagon in Saudi's and to have a portrait hanging in the Metropolitan Museum. The only thing an actor fears more than losing his mind is regaining it. An actor would rather leave an impression than a tip. He'll spend dimes all day to leave a message with his own telephone service to say, Howard Hughes called six times. Why don't you call him back? An actor is a motorized gypsy. He can be led and bled, used and abused, kicked and caressed, and always comes up smiling, if anybody's watching. Certainly an actor is not always what he seems to be. The scene, Stillman's Gym in New York City. Former middleweight champion Rocky Graziano, an actor of sorts himself, tells the story. About 1948, I think it was, a fella is to come up to gym, sit in the same seat. He looked like a fighter. I figured the fella was a four-round fighter. Well, my, he ain't a bad fighter, the kid. I mean, he used to come up and punch the bag, you know. So he, one day he come over to me, he says, hiya, Rocky. I said, hiya, kid. So he said, look, I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm an actor. I said, oh, yeah. You know, he figure an actor dresses nice. This guy, he had overalls on and, you know. He didn't look like an actor. He looks like a fighter. He's the only actor that I know that talks like a fighter. So he says, uh, here's two tickets. You want to come to my uh, show? He says, I'm acting, you know, in Streetcar Named Desire, you know? I says, all right. I said, so I told my wife, I says, Norma, I says, uh, this guy gave me two tickets. When I went home, two tickets, Streetcar Named Desire. She says, ooh, that's a good place. She said, who gave you the tickets? I said, I don't know, some guy by the name of Marlon, who knows? So she says, well, Marlon Brando's a star. I said, oh, it can't be this guy. You know, because this guy's a fighter. So finally, I go to the theater and I sit down and uh, I'm watching the show and all of a sudden this guy, this kid comes out. I figured he was gonna take a walk on with a broom or something. So finally I see him walk on the stage and my wife says, there's Marlon Brando. And I says, that's Marlon Brando. <laughs> he had the same clothes that he was in the gym. I said, look at, look at this guy, you know? And the guy put up a uh, performance there was, uh, was great. Then one day he, he done a, 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 a television show that uh, he acted just like me and, you know, and yeah. boxed just like me. He was studying me for a character and a play that he was going to do. That play, uh, that movie actually, was On the Waterfront and Brando's interpretation of Graziano's personality may win him an Academy Award. But does an actor really have to understand a role in order to play it? The answer comes from the playwright who gave us Death of a Salesman and All My Sons. Here's Arthur Miller. I never think of actors when I'm writing a play. Maybe that's a fault, but I think of people, and uh, actors are presumably people. I think the actor is a special kind of person in one respect, and that is that he has a tendency in his makeup toward the expression of his emotions. 
he should be able, and usually he is when he's any good, to forget completely his own identity as a citizen and to uh, display his secret side. I can't conceive of a man playing a part well who cannot bridge the gap between the role itself and his own experience. That doesn't mean that he has to have been uh, a truck driver at some time if he's playing a truck driver, although that would help. It means that the kind of imagination he has must be that kind of imagination that the character has. The fact is that there is one corner, usually, of an actor's personality which can be engaged by the part. I've known actors who have gone through a year in a play, and uh, in a chance conversation, I have discovered that they never understood the part at all. But evidently, they had been playing a sort of game with the audience. That is to say, they were themselves acting out a part of their own lives through these lines. And while the lines themselves could not be rationally explained by the actor, he had tapped a logical story within himself, which somehow an audience is able to recognize. However, it is certainly true that in most cases, an actor had better understand what he's acting, or we won't. Projecting this kind of understanding across the footlights takes a great deal of training. Actors are made, not born. And as someone once said, actresses will happen in the best regulated of families. Such a family was the Hoggins of Wisconsin, who have a talented daughter named Uta, a star in her own right in such plays as The Country Girl. She's now teaching drama to other talented sons and daughters at the Herbert Berghoff School in New York. Talent is a very, very nebulous, misused, misunderstood word and can express itself in so many different ways. I've seen people where I felt the initial ability was strong, but then they had personal problems, they had personal weaknesses, they were lazy, they didn't uh, follow through on anything. Then I saw somebody else where I felt the talent was less, and they had such integrity as workers that they made it long before the person that I felt initially had more talent. Um, I feel that only in the last 10 years, or even five, has there been a strong surge in the theater of the younger people towards a real technical training. And by technique, I don't mean work on voice and speech, and I don't mean body movement, and I don't mean stage presence, but I mean a real technique of acting. This used to be sneered at in the profession and say, well, he's a square, he's arty, and, uh, and uh, this is a showbiz. And uh, then, recently, what has helped the young actor to believe in acting as a craft and a true technique is that the people, the youngsters who have had training, have won out over the others. People like Eli Wallach, Maureen Stapleton, uh, Lee Grant, Julie Harris, Kim Stanley, Marlon Brando, all these people have had years of solid training in a correct acting technique. I don't teach uh, anybody but adults because I think that, it, uh, again, a real acting technique is something that you cannot teach a child. I was going to direct a play, and uh, there was a part of a young boy in it, five or six-year-old, and I interviewed about 300 boys, and a frightening thing happened. 
um, I tried to interview the boys without their mothers, and I asked the mothers to stay out in the outer office, which the mothers didn't like. And then almost the first question I asked the child was, how, much, how do you like the theater? Do you like acting? Is it fun? Do you enjoy it? And 100% of the children said, no, I just hate it, but shh, don't tell mommy. But child actors grow up, and if they grow up in the acting world, they learn, as did Jackie Cooper, that it has advantages and disadvantages. So I grew up in a crazy world of dressing rooms and hotel rooms and waiting rooms and rooms behind the scenes. I learned to pack my own bag by the time I was 10 years old, and then today my wife is jealous of me. I can pack four bags in... Ten minutes is no problem at all. There are many advantages to growing up in this profession if you want to become an actor. In my case, I had absolutely no say over it at all. I was three years old, and the family was hungry, and it was a way we knew a few people that worked in the movies and the technical end of the business that would put us on a list and get us casted, and I'd get $2 a day for working extra. It's as simple as that. There's absolutely no advantage to growing up in this profession if you should decide to become something else. I think some of the child actors who stayed at it for any great length of time, have had an awful time trying to adjust into being something else. A child gets uh, a lot of adulation being uh, in the public eye, lots of attention and affection and material things. And in 1931, when they were giving out the awards, the Academy Awards, I was nominated along with Lionel Barrymore. Lionel Barrymore being nominated for his performance in A Free Soul and I for... Mine and Skippy, they had no child's award in those days, and uh, the men were up against the boys. And uh, I had fallen asleep on Marie Dressler's lap, and along about 11 o'clock when they'd given the awards out, Mr. Lionel Barrymore had won it. And he came over and woke me up in Marie Dressler's lap, and he was beginning, beginning to have his troubles then, his arthritis and his pains, and he was limping a little bit and on a cane. He came over and he poked me with this little statue, and he says... Uh, this really belongs to you, son, but they gave it to me because they think I'm going to die. Anybody who's raised with this, this uh, tremendously uh, different atmosphere and this overabundance of love and, 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 and affection and being spoiled this way, no matter how hard you try not to spoil the child actor, he's spoiled. And uh, he's going to have an awful time trying to adjust to a, quote, normal, unquote, life. After that, when I went in the service, it was just absolutely unbearable. Um, because there is everybody telling you what to do, plus an awful lot of people who have found out they now have the job of being able to tell people what to do for the first time in their life. And then when they see an actor, uh, for some reason, they uh, enjoy especially telling them what to do. Uh, but uh, it was very, very difficult for me, uh, there again, not being the center of attention and not getting my own way. All this that I had as a boy, you know, this uh, attention and this uh, making my own way, I thought, uh, didn't mean a thing in the service. It didn't mean anything at all, and it made it very, very difficult in the service. It taught me a great lesson. Pity the poor actor. Everybody's always trying to teach him something. Even Shakespeare couldn't resist giving the actor's advice, interpreted here by one of the world's great actors, Sir Lawrence Olivier, as Hamlet. Speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly on the tongue. But if you mouth it, as many of your players do, I had as lief the town crier spoke my lines. No, do not uh, saw the air too much with your hand thus. 
but use all gently. For in the very torrents, tempest, and as I may say, whirlwind of your passion, you must acquire and beget a temperance that may give it smoothness. Oh, it offends me to the soul to hear a robustious, periwig-pated fellow tear a passion to tatters, to split the ears of the groundlings, who for the most part are capable of nothing but inexplicable dumb shows and noise. I would have such a fellow whipped. Without Herod's, Herod's. Pray you avoid it. I warrant your honor. Be not too tame, neither, but let your own discretion be your tutor. Suit the action to the word, the word to the action. With this special observance, that you o'erstep not the modesty of nature. For anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature. To show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. But you don't play Hamlet overnight. Before an actor faces the footlights, he has to face the ordeal of an audition. Come with us to a darkened stage of a Broadway theater where a single naked light bulb glares into the face of a young actress, trying out for a part in the forthcoming musical production, Seventh Heaven. She's Barbara Ashley. Producer Gant Gaither greets her. I think I last saw you in The Liar oh, on Broadway. Yes, that's right. And it's... I thought you were dynamic and wonderful. Thank you very much, Mr. Gaither. This part that we have in mind for you in Seventh Heaven yes. is quite different from the role you had in The Liar, but I think you might be quite right for it, sort of casting against type, maybe. Well, that's most exciting to any actress. This part might require an accent, too, so I might want you to, to sing a number with an accent, as well as, as a rhythm number, if you could. Just, do you have anything that's uh, yes, I have rhythm? Yes, rhythm, I have a rhythm a song. Uh, in fact, it's from the last show that I did, Out of This World, uh, from this moment on. Love to hear it. Good, here it comes. <laughs> Miss Ashley, I know this is a terrible thing to do, to ask anybody to read cold without ever having a chance to look over the script, but we have so little time. We're going yes. to rehearsal in a couple of weeks. I wondered if you would mind reading 
Cole, maybe take a look at the script there just for Not a moment. Not at all. You're explaining how dreadful it was reading Cold makes me know that you understand how dreadful it really is. <laughs> the part is Colette, who is a lady of easy virtue. Yes. And she's warm-hearted mm -hmm. and uh, very uh, vivacious. And she falls in love with the part that Robert Clary is going to play. She falls oh. in love with Clary. And I think this is the scene that we pick up at the Fete Montmartre. May I ask you a question, Mr. Gaither? What has been Colette's relationship with, uh, with the rat? Is, is she angry at this point with him, or is she just, this is just chatting, just talking? Does she have something specific in mind when she meets him, or, or what? What is her mood? She has in mind marriage, I believe. Take off your head, sweetheart. I want to talk to you. Oh, let's have our drinks and beat it. My fingers are itching to embrace that lovely mob. Look. Flieger, where did you get it? Keep your voice down, Cherie. I got it from that guy dressed as Napoleon. Oh, someday you are going to get into real trouble. Not a chance. I lifted this from the one with the big derriere, dressed as Pompadour. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. It's for you. Don't you want it? No. Flieger, why do you do it? Do what? Day in and day out, all you do is steal, steal, steal. Je ne sais pas. Oh, Mr. Gaither. Well, <laughs> do it like that on opening night, and it would suit me fine. That's a wonderful reading. <laughs> and, and you've got a splendid ear for an accent. Wonderful ear. Yeah. There's an old expression, rather frightening one. What? Between actors and managers, don't call us, we'll call you. That's the worst thing an actor has to hear in the clam to stardom. But there are other sounds familiar to the actor, and this is the one he loves best. <laughs> the sound stages of Hollywood are far away from the applauding audience. The noted anthropologist, Dr. Hortense Powdermaker, has studied the effect of that primitive society called Hollywood, its effect on the actor in her book, The Hollywood Dream Factory. One of the things that struck me most when I was in Hollywood was that there, of all places, the actors were not regarded as people. Instead of being admired, they were looked down upon as a kind of subhuman species. There was the cliché that there are three kinds of people, men, women, and actors, and this was heard over and over again. Usually one heard in a belligerent tone, I can't stand actors. To answer the question, what are actors really like? It is necessary to know that while they share certain traits in common, there are obviously wide differences among them. Many are extroverted in nature, exhibitionistic, generous, and warm. Some are gay, but quite a few, particularly the comedians, are serious. In other words, there is as much difference between actors as there is between other people. In Hollywood, there are the gifted, the not-so-gifted, and the ungifted actors. And for all of them, acting is not just a way of earning a living, but a way of life. The movie industry exploits their need for exhibitionism, an essential of all acting, but at the same time, many people in the industry are both jealous and resentful of the actors. These are the people who pamper, flatter, and glamorize the actor for the public, 
but who privately scorn and hate them, and who treats the actors as if they were not human. If proof were needed that actors are people, it would be their deep resentment to this situation. For all members of our species, not to be regarded as human is a severe threat. Like all primitive societies, Hollywood has a caste system. To a newcomer, like English actor Peter Ustinov, it was bewildering. For an actor, it can be a fairly uncomfortable and comic experience to play a slave in a film which is well staffed by latter-day romantics. In the past, I have played an emperor, which is a tiring business, but certainly everyone treated me with incredible circumspection, attending to my every whim with the most embarrassing servility, and even inventing whims for me when my capricious uh, invention ran dry. This was certainly because to Hollywood people, Hollywood emperors are more real than real emperors. In the process of democratization, my next role after the emperor was a prince, a mere prince. And here already, in a, in a minute degree, I could sense the rot setting in. While everyone was almost as keen to know my, or is it our, pleasure as before, there was a tendency here and there to sneak a sly wink in my direction, to be a bit slovenly about fetching those nerve-steadying beverages, and, in general, to make it known to me in a subtle and unkind way that I was no longer an emperor, that my throne was approached by a humbler, by a less steep flight of steps, and that I was on the way down the social scale. This time, as I have said before, I, I played a slave, and with this experience, all my high thoughts of government by the people, thoughts I cherished while I was still in, in on giddy heights, were dissipated. Groveling in the sands of ancient Egypt, carrying vast loads under the menacing eye of pre-Christian taskmasters, armed with savage and historically accurate weapons, has taught me my lesson and engendered in my trusting heart the first cruel pangs of a worldly cynicism. Take my word for it, in the Hollywood fairyland, dictatorship is the best form of government, so long as you are cast in the role of the dictator. A good cause, it seems, for temperament in the Hollywood actor. But does temperament help the talent? Famous director, Alfred Hitchcock, should have the answer. I would say myself that the actor's temperament is one of his uh, main assets in his job as an actor. We've become accustomed to, to uh, hearing about actresses going into a tantrum or screaming her head off in the dressing room or smashing vases and objets d'art all over her boudoir. Uh, this is what we've come to recognize or, or, or get used to hearing the word temperamental. Now, how do I handle people like this? Well, um, uh, I would say myself that how does a mother handle a recalcitrant child? Uh, with the slipper, the hairbrush? Uh, I personally like to feel that the actors think of me as a kind of uh, gentle mother who will reward them with a piece of cake if they uh, behave or perform. Uh, sometimes the temperamental actor is very often when the temperament doesn't overflow too much is the best of them all. I remember in the last picture 
uh, I was doing in the south of France. It was called To Catch a Thief. And I was doing the scene with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. And it was just an ordinary little dialogue scene. But their anxiety on both their parts to make the thing flow and run smoothly without any uh, uh, mechanics necessarily. And they did achieve a scene, and between them, both Grace and Carey uh, kind of nodded to each other with approval that it had gone smoothly and spontaneously. And this is what I would call real creativeness in the actor. The curtain falls now on the first half of The Actor. It's intermission time, but the actor will be back after a 10-second pause for station identification. We continue now with the actor, and here again is that distinguished bon vivant and news commentator, Mr. Morgan Beatty. When I first saw the light, it was pink and amber coming from the footlights Actors live continually in the glare of the spotlight. Their comings and goings are reported daily in the press. For actors, there is no such thing as a private life. To those who read about them, their lives are glamorous and exciting. Many a man imagines himself with his arms around a beautiful actress. But to those who write about them, it's a different story. Last summer, I handed down to one of my sons, Wise Counsel. This was done rather publicly. I wrote it for the Saturday Evening Post, an article titled, Never Marry an Actress. I did it only because I'm anxious for him to be happy. That would be Leonard Lyons, popular syndicated columnist and confidant of many actresses. I want no son of mine marrying a girl to whose constant soaring hopes he would have to sacrifice his own ambitions, his own personality, and his own identity. Mind you now, it's not that I don't like actresses. I do. They're nice, real nice, across the footlights, or at parties, or around restaurant tables. But not, not as permanent fixtures in the hearts of my offspring. In the first place, any man or woman, obsessed with the feeling that people will spend time and money to watch them moving about on a platform, reciting words and striking poses, must be touched with a bit of madness, and must be deemed one apart from all others, except from those similarly touched. Let's examine the product. The actor offers vocal, non-enduring services for which, at best, the paying customer receives in return nothing but a fleeting, pleasant memory. Acting, basically, is the art of pretending to be someone you aren't. And the higher the quality of this insincerity, the better you are rated. Basically, of course, acting is a woman's profession, for make-believe is a feminine attribute. Yet, to strengthen a masquerade, the actor will resort to wigs and gowns and padding and putty. In no other profession would a man feel such little hesitation about putting paint and powder on his face. All thoughts and preoccupations of the dedicated performer are concerned only with the stage and the role. Everything else, marriage, children, health, is but an adjunct to the prime need to perform. To perform is the sole and most gratifying function. An actor who has been ordered by his doctor to give up smoking would start puffing away like a steam engine if the role called for him to light a cigarette. A performer who has been dieting carefully under strict medical supervision would devour gallons of whipped cream eight times a week if the script required it. Neither jeopardy to life and limb nor even the deepest of personal tragedy 
can ever sway the actor from his course to the stage. As long as an actor is conscious, he'll go on. Why must the show go on? It is vanity, of course, for vanity is the motivating force of all performers. It courses through the bloodstreams of the entire breed without regard to size, color, creed, or age. Vanity is perhaps the only genuine human quality possessed by the dedicated performers. David Warfield, the greatest actor of his age, made many millions from his work in the theater. And when fame and fabulous wealth at last were his, Mr. Warfield was asked, what is the greatest thrill in life? For me, replied this man, for whom all thrills, all pleasures were his to command. For me, there can be but one answer, said Warfield. The greatest thrill in life still is just to walk across a stage. Just to walk across a stage. The supreme thrill. But why? What is it about these people, these actors, that makes that the greatest thrill in life? The answer comes from psychoanalyst John Gustin. Well, on a conscious level, there are, of course, the familiar incentives, such as fame, glamour, money, power, but more often than not. These are simply rationalizations for more complex and hidden motives. And these motives are, and these motives are usually to be found in the unconscious. Acting, for example, enables a person gripped by self-doubt and self-hate to get away from himself and be, for a time, someone else. To a tortured soul, this can indeed be a relief. While the act of acting provides an outlet for an otherwise cramped ego, it is not without danger and frustration. Unlike any of the other performing arts, acting demands that the artist submerge his own personality so that his creation may be the more real. Rubinstein is expected to play Chopin as Rubinstein, but Lee Cobb must not be anyone other than Willie Lohman. When the ego of the actor is not fully developed, it fears the danger of being inundated by the character to be portrayed. For example, there was a highly respected and talented actress who played Blanche Dubois in Tennessee Williams' Streetcar. After several weeks of portraying the nightly disintegration of Blanche's personality, her own unconscious fears of psychosis emerged, and her own ego structure could no longer tolerate the identification. While acting may, through compensation and sublimation, grant temporary relief from inner turmoil, it is not enough to think of it merely as a defense against morbid disposition or a safety valve to avoid neurotic conflict. It is also, for the actor, an opportunity to free himself from reality and to reach out into the spaceless area of creative expression to bring to himself and to the world new hope, new dimension, and new life. And an actress like Helen Hayes gives her audiences a new dimension of life in her performances. Here she is in that new dimension, uh, not as Helen Hayes, but as Victoria Regina. That that cheering that I hear means that my dear people are expecting to see me again, and I must not disappoint them. Will you have the windows opened? It is very gratifying, very, to find after all these years that they do appreciate all that I have tried to do for them, for their good, and for this great country of ours. 
We have been so, so close together today, they and I. All my dear people of England and Scotland and Ireland and the dear colonies from all around the world I've had messages, you know. It's most extraordinary, most extraordinary. Such devotion, such loyalty. <laughs> Would you tell Mr. Chamberlain how very much I approve all the arrangements he has made for the proper representation of all parts of my empire in the procession. Everything was in perfect order. It was most gratifying. Well, I, I, I must go and rest now, you know, or I shall not be able to take my place at dinner tonight, and that would never do, would it? <laughs> That was a finished performance. The performance of a top star, but few are stars. The climb to the top is strewn with obstacles, and all along the way stands the agent, guide, mentor, and collector of the 10%. Theatrical agent Dick Maney has seen many come and go. It is difficult to define the actor because he is a dedicated person who is also a little deranged. Otherwise, he would not be practicing so perilous, so risky a profession. You know, actors to start off with were looked upon as members of the criminal class. You know, in the time of Cromwell, the theater was outlawed. In the early days in Rome and Athens, actors were recruited from the slave class. Only women of loose virtue were permitted to even get on a stage. I have a theory that was more exciting and was less reputable. At the present time, from the press agent's standpoint, uh, he, he succeeds with actors insofar as he is able to uh, appease their egos, uh, caress their vanity, and listen to their cries of distress. Because of that perilous nature of his position, the actor is under the impression that the entire theater is banded together in a conspiracy to destroy them. Actors very rarely have a good word to say about other performers. Correspondingly, they do not think they should be exploited. Their whole attitude is selfish, but it's understandable why it is selfish. What success they have achieved has been achieved after years of rehearsing. Many of them rehearse longer than they play over a given year, over humiliations of running around from office to office seeking employment, of long searches for employment that without avail. It is an ironic thing in the theater. There's only one person in it that has uh, security. And by, in the sense that security means uh, an assured term of office. The night watchman. To paraphrase Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, the actor's lot is not an easy one. Ralph Bellamy, president of Actors' Equity, explains why. Actors' Equity Association is uh, the actors' union, really. In 1919, there was a general strike against the legitimate theater. The strike was against the managers of those days, those uh, without integrity and those who were responsible for the abuses which prevailed, such as rehearsing for months without pay and uh, then finally signing a contract on the manager's arbitrarily imposed terms, unsafe and insanitary conditions backstage and generally in the during the life of the engagement, uh, deplorable travel conditions, uh, frequently leaving uh, companies stranded in the hinterlands. 
Uh, the strike was successful and uh, recognition was attained uh, so that over the years the association has uh, benefited the actor with respect to uh, minimum salaries, uh, general working conditions, always bearing in mind the general welfare of the theater. Of a membership of some 6,500, our records show that 900 actors worked in 1953 in the legitimate theater field at a median salary of $800 a year. So that might give some impression of the amount of work available in the theater. Uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, the electronic age, which means radio and television, have provided other sources of income for actors, fortunately, which did not exist before that. It is difficult to start a career. That has always been and perhaps always will be. And I would say that the legitimate theater is uh, not particularly in a healthy condition as it never has been, but nothing will ever destroy it. It's always had to struggle and it probably will continue to struggle. Indeed, even the inheritance of a great theatrical name does not guarantee a place on the stage without a struggle. The late Lionel Barrymore recalled his first big break. I tried in vain to reach the Broadway stage for nearly 10 years and had just about reconciled myself to spending the rest of my life on the road with repertoire shows or in stock companies which I had graced, more or less, for so many long and impecunious weeks when destiny in the person of Ethel, who was then in Paris, took a hand. Ethel cornered C.F., uh, Charles Froman, in an unguarded moment, and while I don't know how she managed it, she induced him to give me a really great part that enabled me to burst like a chrysalis on Broadway and knock him for a row of Chinese pagodas. His brother John once said, one of my chief regrets during my years in the theater is that I couldn't sit in the audience and watch me. But even that actor's ego had small beginnings, and John loved to tell how that beginning took place. I was 10 years old, Ethel was 12, and Lionel 14. Ethel was Camille, Lionel was Armand Duval, the leading man, and I was the Comte de Varville, the villain. It was my uh, first experience as a menace, and I gave it all I had, including a large black mustache made of corn silk and pasted on with LePage's glue. All went well until the scene in the gambling den in which Ethel did a saraband or gypsy dance with a tambourine which came magically from heaven knows where. The effect on the audience was stupendous. Lionel and I, to whom this uh, innovation was totally unexpected, stood there like two galvanized tailor's dummies till a slightly older boy named Arthur Byron saved the situation by uh, sweeping up to her and saying the amazing line, which he evidently had made up himself on the spur of the moment, Come, entice me further, pretty one, over a libation in the conservatory. And the curtain descended before an enraptured, in fact, a convulsed audience. Ethel, the last of this Barrymore triumvirate, shows that age and time are held in great disdain by the actor. 
I've been used for so long to shuffling time back and forth in my makeup box that actually time has lost its meaning. Sometimes I pause before the dressing room mirror wondering what am I to be tonight, 90 or 40? With this manipulating of the calendar, time has merely become an accommodation to me. Not only time, but all of life is merely an accommodation to the actor. The eldest Barrymore Lionel put it this way. To the great actor, everything admirable that he reads or sees or hears must be his. Let the most profound, the most classic line fall from his lips, and he must be unconscious of the fact that he is not the author of it. Certainly, great actors are of a special breed. Here's one of them, Sir Ralph Richardson. All people are special. If they were not, there would be no material for acting. Actors, like all others, are very special. The greatest actor we had in this country was Edmund Keane, and according to all actors, he was half crazy. The greatest performer I ever saw was Mrs. Patrick Campbell when she played Hedda Gabler. I didn't know Mrs. Campbell very well, but I knew one or two of her managers, and they told me they'd been driven half crazy. The best actors that I've known well are a very special kind of people. They're possessed of a self-discipline that would turn an army general any color of envy. They might be said to be very single-minded. They could be said to have a one-track mind, but they're extremely intelligent in that track, extremely flexible in the use of their intelligence. Indeed, as I say, they are a very special kind of people. If he is going to be a great actor, he will, of necessity, play great parts. For these, it is necessary that nature will have endowed him with a voice. And it is necessary that he must have a mind capable of observing men and women and possess the fire and the imagination to demonstrate these observations in dramatic action. But the overwhelming quality that a great actor must possess is a passionate love for his craft and for the theater. Great acting is very rare. Also very rare is passionate love. And in that rarefied atmosphere of passionate love, great performances stand out. Performances like Jose Ferrer's Cyrano de Bergerac. Know that I glory in this nose of mine, for a great nose indicates a great man. Genial, courteous, intellectual, virile, courageous as I am, and such as you, poor wretch, will never dare to be, even in imagination. Take notice all who find this feature of my countenance a theme for comedy. <laughs> ah. When the humorist is noble, then my custom is to show appreciation proper to his rank, more heartfelt and more pointed. Presently this fellow will grow tiresome. Duh, he blows his trumpet. Observe, I myself will proceed to put him in his place. <clears throat> ah, your nose. Your nose is rather large. Rather? Oh, well. Is that all? Well, of course. Ah, no, young sir, you're too simple. Why, you might have said, oh, a great many things. Mon Dieu, why waste your opportunity? For example, thus. Aggressive. I, sir, if that nose were mine, I would have it amputated on the spot. Friendly. How do you drink with such a nose? You ought to have a cup made especially. Descriptive. Tis a rock, a crag, a cape, 
a cape. <laughs> Say rather a peninsula. Inquisitive, uh, what is that receptacle? A razor case or a portfolio? Kindly. Ah, do you love the little birds so much that when they come and sing to you, you give them this to perch on? Insolent. Sir, when you smoke, the neighbors must suppose your chimney is on fire. Cautious. Take care. A weight like that might make you top-heavy. Thoughtful. Somebody fetch my parasol. These delicate colors fade so in the sun. A pedantic. Does not Aristophanes mention a mythologic monster called Hippocampelephantocamelos? Surely we have here the original. Familiar. Well, old torchlight, hang your hat over that chandelier. It hurts my eyes. Eloquent. When it blows, the typhoon howls, and the clouds darken. Dramatic. When it bleeds, the Red Sea. Enterprising. What a sign for some perfumer. Lyric. Hark, the horn of Roland calls to summon Charlemagne. Simple. Eh, when do they unveil the monument? Respectful. Sir, I recognize in you a man of parts, a man of uh, prominence. Rustic. Eh? What? Call that a nose? <laughs> I be no fool like what you think I be. That there's a cucumber. Military. Point against cavalry. Practical. Why not a lottery with this for the grand prize? Or, parodying Faustus in the play, was this the nose that launched a thousand ships? These, my dear sir, are things you might have said had you some tinge of letters or of wit to color your discourse. But wit, not so. You never had an atom. And of letters, you need but three to write you down. An ass. That performance certainly won critical acclaim. But critical acclaim is not easy to come by. The critic, that poker-faced man with the well-sharpened pencil and barb, is the bane of the actor's existence. One of the most respected is Walter Kerr, drama critic of the New York Herald Tribune. I suppose that relationships between the newspaper reviewers and the actors around town are always bound to be pretty much on the uneasy side. Uh, I suppose one of the most famous things ever said about actors in this respect was said by the late Percy Hammond when he remarked that the more you praise an actor, the more it despises you. It shouldn't be this uh, way. Because at the present time, it seems to me anyway, newspaper reviewers are exceptionally kind to actors. Kinder to actors, really, than to anyone else in the whole domain of the theater. It wasn't always this way. If you read 19th century criticism at all, you'll find the daily newspapers saying that Mr. So-and-so was obviously in a drunken condition last night, that he obviously hadn't prepared the role, that he didn't care who came to the theater or whether he got out of it alive or not. He was simply a wreck. That's a very commonplace kind of criticism. You wouldn't see it today. Even in our own century, you uh, do come across, say, someone like Haywood Broom going so far as to suggest that a certain actor is perhaps the worst actor in the world. And you will find the actor suing him for it. After the suit, the next time that Mr. Broom had occasion to review this actor, he simply remarked that so-and-so was not up to his usual standard. Today, though, the barrage of unfavorable 
criticism is normally directed at the playwright and almost never at the players. The worst that normally happens to an actor nowadays in the newspapers is that he may not be mentioned at all. I do think, perhaps, though, that we are too easy on actors. I think that uh, in, in failing to be a little more severe, a little sharper, in failing to call attention to their defects, that we may possibly be sometimes doing them a disservice. Actually, uh, actors resist criticism, I suppose, because they are a terribly opinionated group of people. I think that they may be the only uh, group of people in the theater who are more opinionated than the critics. Their opinions are definite, they are firm, they are sharp, they are secure. I have never read in a newspaper comment quite so strong, sometimes comment quite so accurate, as the comment you will get from a player talking about a fellow player's performance. Actors are in their own way critics. If they don't get along terribly well with critics, it may be because they satisfy their need all by themselves. This then is the actor, an elusive combination of all those things inherent in every one of us. And how do we close? Certainly we have not told you everything about the actor any more than we could tell you everything about life. Let's close then as the actor would close, with a great curtain line. It comes from a great actress, again, Ethel Barrymore. That's all there is. There isn't any more. The National Broadcasting Company has presented The Actor with the distinguished news commentator, Mr. Morgan Beatty. This has been another in NBC's transcribed series of Biographies in Sound, produced under the supervision of Joseph Myers for NBC News. This is Dr. Gino Hamilton speaking. The Actor was edited by Chet Hagen and Gloria Kay.